Let me invite you now, if you have a Bible, to open it to the book of Philippians. Today we're in chapter 2, continuing a series of messages on biblical foundations for change. And uh, I'll give you the punchline of the message in case you want to go to sleep. No. uh, (laughs) Because God accepts us completely in Christ and freely, change is possible. Because God accepts us freely in Christ, change is possible for those of us who believe. So hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today. We are people who need you. And so we pray today that we recognize this is your word. And we know that we need to do more than just understand it. We need to live it. And it's easier to understand than it is to put into practice. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us not only understand it, not only believe it, but also live it out. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Because God accepts us completely and freely, change is possible. That's what we want to talk about today as we talk about the relationship between faith and effort. Because one of the things you'll notice in the Bible is that the Bible tells us that we're not only justified by faith, we are also sanctified by faith. And so faith is this disposition. Faith is looking outside of myself and clinging to Christ. It's not looking within to find power. It's looking outside of myself and, for lack of a better term, velcroing to Christ, clinging to him. Faith is exterior in its orientation. It's looking outside of my. It's not belief in yourself. It's not trying harder. It's not knuckling down or gritting your teeth or just doing it. Faith is looking outside of yourself and trusting, relying upon the one who is our Savior. The only one qualified to be our Savior because we cannot save ourselves. And so once we are declared by God to be right with him forever forever under his favor, accepted completely in the beloved, righteous as Jesus is because we wear his beautiful robe of righteousness, covers us, sins forgiven, remembered against us no more, all of that done without us ever contributing anything but our sins. But sanctification is not an event, not a declaration. It is a process. It is a process in which we undergo a relationship with God built upon trust. 
And because we have been accepted completely by him, we are now freed from our sins and freed from ourselves to pursue holiness. That is our driven attitude as believers in Christ. Every time I move over to this side, which I like to favor, I'm getting feedback right here. So I'm going to turn this down. Okay? I don't know when I became a left-handed preacher, but today I'm over here for a minute. So what I'm trying to tell you is that in the Christian life, we have to learn how to trust Christ daily. Now, we're jumping into the middle of a passage, and, and the Bible does teach regarding salvation that God accepts us, he pardons us, he forgives us apart from anything we do. What we do doesn't matter at all in terms of justification other than repenting of our sins, looking outside of ourselves, and relying completely upon Christ. But... Because God accepts us, apart from what we do, what we do after we've been accepted does matter. It does matter. And what God calls us to, after we have been accepted by Christ, is a life of obedience. A life of obedience. So we're not accepted by God because we try hard to live a new life. We're accepted by God because of what Jesus Christ has done in our place as a substitute. And having been accepted by God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, God not only forgives us, but he begins this lifelong process of changing us from one degree of glory to another degree of glory by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. So change is now possible. And so, the reason why the Apostle Paul is so hopeful that we can change as a result of being in union with Christ is because of what these verses teach us. But before we dive into these verses, I want to establish the context of the verses so that they will control the meaning of what we see in terms of these uh, verses. In uh, chapter 1, in uh, verse 27, if you just want to look up the page and check me out, he says, what? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he continues. And then in chapter 2, he calls us, to unity and then provides for us the greatest incentive ever. He gives us the, what is known as the Christ hymn about Christ humbling himself, becoming a servant, submitting himself to death on the cross, now highly exalted at the right hand of God, coming eventually to judge us. And so the therefore of verse 12 points back at least to chapter 1 verse 27 and following where we have been given the greatest example of what it means to live in obedience to God. It requires humility. It requires submissiveness. It requires no longer having a will of my own in the face of God, but being malleable and teachable and tender and able to be shaped by God and his work in our lives. And so the context controls exactly what we're, uh, the meaning is here. And so... 
Uh, many Christians who are well-meaning draw this deduction from these verses. Well, since God is at work in me, working to change me, I don't need to do anything. I don't need to do anything. In other words, Pastor, if you're telling me I'm sanctified by faith, then I'm in this posture of passive receiving. Passive receiving. Not active engagement. And you know, when you think about that, many, many Christians uh, fall into something called, are uh, uh, more influenced by something called cheap grace. And the thing I would say about cheap grace, which is Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a good deal about it. He said, grace is free, but I would add, but it's not cheap. We cheapen it when we turn the grace of God into lawlessness or lust. Easy believism, which embraces forgiveness without repentance, is the essence of cheap grace. Cheap grace deceives us into thinking that discipleship and commitment and our obedience are somewhat optional in the Christian life. There is little knowledge of sin and even less deep repentance. And the hard work of self-examination and confession of sin are rare or unknown. Cheapening grace leads to a lifestyle of tolerating today what was reprehensible a year ago. The ultimate outcome of this mindset is a drifting away from God, a floating sense of guilt and bitterness, and a hair-trigger response to the resentment and hostility toward someone holding you accountable or someone lovingly confronting you. There's a better way. There's a better way, and the way Paul is giving us is a much better way. On the other hand, there are people who fall into self-effort. And falling into self-effort is the quickest way I know to um, succumb to the dangers of self-generated effort. Self-generated effort is the number one cause of being a legalist or a Pharisee or a moralist. It's Avis theology, try harder, or Nike th theology, just do it. It appeals to our pride in ourselves. It deceives us into thinking that if we just put out a little more effort and discipline, we will do the trick. To think this way is to underestimate the power of remaining residual indwelling sin. And to way overestimate our ability in ourselves to do anything. Jesus said in John 15, where he talked about the vine and the branches, without me, you can do nothing. I asked my pastor one time when I was a little boy, what is nothing? He said, it's a zero with all the edges trimmed off. That's what nothing is. And that's what we can do apart from Christ, as far as pursuing holiness, as far as growing in grace. And so on the one hand, you have those who emphasize self-effort, and they beat you over the head every week with the imperatives in the Bible. And it's a constant gotcha, constant gotcha, conscious focus on the imperatives without realizing that all the commands in Scripture are based on prior things that Jesus has done on our behalf, which puts us in a unique position. Until we understand we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, none of our works enter into it. Until we understand that completely, we will trust in ourselves every single time. 
We will trust in ourselves to have the strength to do it. People often say to me, well, pastor, I just can't seem to muster up the strength. You know, I just seem to be getting weaker and weaker. You know what I say to that? Great. That's the most wonderful thing I have ever heard in my life. You finally discovered the truth. You are weak. You are not powerful in and of yourself. But there's hope. There's great hope, and I'm trying to get to it, but you won't let me because you're not listening well. So, the emphasis here is the Apostle Paul is, is drawing this logical deduction. He says this. He says, since God is at work in me, working to change me, then I find a great resource of optimism. Since God is working in me, I work with hope. Since God is at work in me, it's not that I don't need to work. It is, or use any kind of effort, it is that I work with hope. And so as we think about this passage again, and the whole passage, it's not about justification. This passage is about sanctification. It's about being made like Christ. And we said that of course with just justification we're accepted completely upon the basis of who Jesus is and what he's done for us we contribute nothing to that not even our faith is a reason God accepts us our faith is the way we receive his free acceptance but in our change things are different yes God works in us by his grace to change us but in a very different way from our being accepted by God in justification. We work toward, towards, uh, we also work towards change in us, cooperating with God the Holy Spirit and what he's doing in our lives. And that's very different from our acceptance. It's also very different from self-generated effort. You know what self-generated effort is? It's what Paul calls the flesh. And in Galatians 3, 1 through 5, he, he talked about that clearly. I'm not going to go there because I don't have time. But he said very clearly that turning back to the law is flesh. Turning back to what I do and depending on what I do alone is flesh. Depending upon the Spirit, relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit, that Spirit, that's life. The other is death. No progress at all. No change at all. Can't change ourselves by the power and energy of the flesh. So, it's an amazing thing he's saying here. I want you to understand that Paul is talking here about the fact of how we are changed, how we grow, how we become more mature as believers. And, and you'll understand that Paul is not saying work to save yourself in the sense of work so that you'll be justified or work so that you'll be accepted or work to put God in debt to you or work so that he'll finally forgive you. Paul does not mean that you must somehow save yourself from God's judgment by doing good works or by your efforts or by your goodness. He's talking to those who have already been converted, already been justified, already accepted, forgiven, right with God forever. 
He, they've already been pardoned. They've already been justified. And he's telling them how to live for Jesus, how to grow in the Christian life. And so when Paul says, work out your salvation, he in effect is talking about sanctification, deliverance from the power of sin in our current Christian lives. That's the reality he's speaking of. And he tells us in a very powerful verb, work out your salvation. Now, he commends them for their obedience. He said, whether I'm here with you or in my absence, I commend you for your obedience, but you are to work out. What, that verb, work out, is a very interesting verse. Uh, it could be used and has been used to describe working out a math problem. To work out a math problem. I remember when I was in uh, math four in high school, which is sort of pre-calculus, pre-whatever. It was a hard class and a difficult class, and I had senioritis in the worst way. I just wanted to go. I mean, I'm done. I've already finished high school. Don't be making me go up to the chalkboard. That tells you how old I am. Chalkboard. And answer this word problem and write down every step through the process of serving, of, of solving this word problem and so I had to work it out I had to work it out my problem was there was nothing in here to work it out with because I had stopped thinking and I was sort of coasting to the finish line and I remember being embarrassed and humiliated and he questioned me and he was sort of an old-school kind of teacher and he was also my neighbor and he also knew my dad really well that's what's bad about growing up in a small town everybody knows everybody who knows everybody who knows your dad right <laughs> and so he found out about it but I was totally humiliated in the class couldn't answer the problem there were other problems I could answer but that one I couldn't I still don't know the answer to it if you were to give it to me today because I just you know zoned I had a mental breakdown or Another analogy, way of understanding what this work out means is working out or cultivating a garden. Some of you, despite all the odds of living in the desert, in this heat, try the best you can in your homes to have gardens. You try to grow flowers. You try to grow plants. You try to grow um, fruit or whatever. And you put a lot of investment and a lot of energy because you're working out what's already put in there. You have to add to the soil. You have to do all kinds of stuff. But when you get the right stuff going on, you get enough water, you get plenty of sunshine, eventually growth will occur. And so when Paul says, work out your salvation, he is addressing us and telling us that the Christian life requires effort. It requires effort. That's why the Bible says strive. Strive to enter. That's why it tells us to resist sin. Um, that is why it tells us to labor, to struggle, to fight, to pursue, to put to death, to put off, to put on. So we're actively engaged in our growth in grace. If we're doing this with the realization that I'm already accepted, that God is present with me, then I understand that there are things I need to work out. Very important. There is the working out. But we can no more sanctify ourselves by our own strength than we can justify ourselves by our own works. We are sanctified by faith, 
that involves our responsible participation. Now, I used to say this. I used to say that being born again or regeneration or conversion is monergistic. Mono meaning one, ergo working, is one person working. God comes to me dead in my sins as I am, or was before Christ, God comes to me and he, by an act of his own will, through the power of his spirit, makes me alive. Otherwise, I'd still be dead. I wouldn't care a thing about being here today. I would probably be very cynical about the whole operation. But because God in his infinite grace decided to draw a circle around me and draw me to himself and he invaded my life and he raised me from the dead and he put his spirit within me, that is all God's doing. He did it. But now, there is something for me to do in response to what he has done. And I am to work out all the Bible says about walking with Christ. And so there's working out. But don't forget this. One of the most important things to understand about the verses before us are verse 13. Now he tells us how to do it too. He's saying when he says to do it with fear and trembling, not fear of punishment, not fear of condemnation, but fear in the sense of awe and respect and honor to the one who is our Lord. Trembling here is like recognizing this is serious. This matters. And so I am to be busily engaged with working out my own self, not working for my salvation, but working out the salvation I've already been given in Christ. Like solving a math problem, growing a garden, cultivating it, I'm to work it out. I'm to work it out, I'm to work it out. That's my call in the Christian life. And I'm to do it with an attitude of respect and fear. That is godly fear. Standing in awe of the one who has saved me. Desiring with all of my being to please him. And I am to engage with this with all of my being, with a sense of its utmost seriousness. It does matter how you live once you've tasted of the grace of God. Now, the next part of the verse is the one that gives me hope. Why do you ever pray? Why do you ever read the Bible? Why do you ever talk to anyone about Christ? Why do you ever come to a worship service? Why do you ever engage yourself in community with other believers? You think that's your idea? No. Guess who works that in you? You see, read the last verse. It is God who works in you both the willing and the doing. Now this is going to blow your mind. I have never uttered a prayer that God, the Holy Spirit, did not move me to do it. I've never read the Bible with a searching heart had not God, the Holy Spirit, moved me to do it. You're here today worshiping God. You think you came because you wanted to come, and you wanted to come because he inclined your heart to come. You see, we want to take credit. We want to boast. 
We want to say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm really into this Christianity thing, and I'm, I'm really trucking along with it. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm getting it down. It's working for me. No. If anything is happening in your life drawing you to do anything for Jesus alone, God is working that in you. So we work out. I used to say that, that sanctification is synergistic. I'm going to change my mind on that. It does involve two working, but they are not equal. It is synergistic in that two people are involved in the relationship, but it's asymmetrical. God always works first. But here's the caveat. If you aren't working it out, why? What if you're not working it out? What if you're, you could care less about reading the Bible? You only come to church sporadically. You have no sense of commitment to things. You never share the gospel with anybody. You never have joy in Jesus. You never want to worship. You, ne you never go before him and pour your heart out in prayer. You never confess your sins. You don't do any of this. And you're saying, well, you know, it just doesn't work for me. I would be concerned. I would be deeply concerned if there were not desires welling up in me for Jesus. I would be deeply concerned because God says he who has begun a good work in you will what will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ how do you know you're saved one of the internal evidences of salvation is fruitfulness and how does fruitfulness come about you work out what God works in and that's how you change it's an inside job and it's all God's work in us. And we're so prone to take credit for that. We, we want to be quick to say so. But all of these admonitions in Scripture. Let me just take you on a little journey. Follow along with me. It won't last long, I promise. But look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. I want you to see something. Now, everybody knows 1 Corinthians 15 is the big resurrection chapter. But before we get there, the Apostle Paul says something. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15:9, Paul says this, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But look closely at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Same guy, same guy that wrote, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. There Paul says it. He says, I'm more fa I work harder than anybody I know. But it's not me. It's God at work in me. God is working it in. I'm working it out. You don't believe me? Go to Colossians chapter 1. Please. We're going to stay in the New Testament. Take a right turn. And Colossians chapter 1. And verse 27. Or actually verse... 28. Let's just start at verse 28. Colossians 1, 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this toil 
struggling, Paul says, with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. I didn't tell you, but the word for works in you is energeo. Energeo, which means what? Energize. Who is it that energizes? When God works in us, he energizes us to do his pleasure, to seek him and to seek his pleasure. And so there Paul says it, I toil, but what's driving me is the energy he powerfully works within me. And I could go to 20 more, but I'll do just one more because uh, it all has to end at some point. It? Hebrews, the last verse of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 13, next to the last verse. Actually, I'll get it right in a minute. Verse 20, Hebrews 13, verse 20. Look, look at this again. Now, I'm not making this up. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us what? that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. God energizes us. We work out what he works in. The problem is, if God's promised to do that, if you're accepted in the Beloved, if you belong to him, if he's placed his spirit within you, it is inevitable that God is at work in you. And that working will issue in what? Effort. This is God-given effort. This is not effort arising from self because self-effort always has wrong motives. Always. Always. Self-effort is me trying to fix myself. Self-effort is me trying to get glory. Self-effort is me building my record. Self-effort is all about me, me, me. But working out what he works in is effort that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and empowered by what God works in us. And that makes change hopeful. Otherwise, I would say all of you, well, you know, we can all talk about being better people, but forget about it. Not going to happen. I mean, you know, how are you going to do anything? And so some of us tend to err, not err, but err. Uh, R.C. Sproul was teaching me in seminary one time, and uh, he said, I know that all of you say to err is human and to forgive is what? Divine. He said, you are wrong. He said, the word is err. Of course, you know what I did? I said, Dr. Sproul, you're playing shortstop for the Pittsburgh Pirates, your favorite team. I'm at bat. I hit a line shot. It rolls right between your legs into the left center field. What happened? You committed an error or an error? <laughs> he said, I committed an error, but it's err. <laughs> I looked it up. He's right at least in some dictionaries. But we, we tend to fall off one way or the other.
throughout the history of the church, there have been various ways people have sort of missed the point Paul is making here. One of them is called quietism. Quietism is sort of the passive approach to Christianity, which basically could be summarized in the phrase, let go and let God. In other words, you can't do anything. You have no power. You don't even need to try to do anything. What you need to do is just let go and let God have you. And their insistence upon that means you don't even work to use the means of grace to grow. You don't need to do all these things. That just gets in the way of the Holy Spirit working. You just need to let, let Jesus live his life through you. As if you don't have a personality. As if you don't have a will. As if you don't have a heart. Totally half-truth, heretical teaching. Quietism. Hannah Pearsall Smith. Keswick theology. I could name names, but I won't. If you really want to know, I'll tell you later in private. But you know why I know so much about that teaching? Because I embraced it with all of my heart. If I tell you something's wrong, I know it's wrong because I did it and it didn't work. And then the other one is called pietism. The Lutheran Church never has been that jacked up about sanctification. I'm sorry to say it, but historically, they have majored a lot on uh, justification, which is good. But they're a little weak on talking. Luther was not weak on talking about sanctification, but Lutheran theologians have. And so they had a lot of what they call dead orthodoxy in the truth. Dead orthodoxy is holding the right notions of the truth, but those notions of the truth are not actively changing your heart and life. And so there's a lot of dead wood, a lot of uh, nominal Christianity in the Lutheran church. And so in the 17th century, a movement arose by uh, Jacob Spinner and a few others that, that got, he wrote Pia Desiradata uh, about being active in the Christian life. And so in reaction to the Lutheran quietism and pacifism, they came out pushing uh, pietism. Piety's good, pietism is not. Piety stresses human activity and moral effort. And it comes from the 18th century Germany, which protested the dead orthodoxy at the Lutheran church. It encouraged a lot of things that were good, such as growth of Bible study groups, and an emphasis upon practical Christianity and an emphasis upon useless beliefs which do not lead to good works. But the pietism ended up becoming very insistent upon things like self-discipline, spiritual exercises, uh, and a lot of forms of asceticism, which is basically disciplining the body, thinking you're going to discipline the heart. There was an outward emphasis upon those things. And so, I need to conclude this message. Ooh, it's going to be early today. No, it isn't, because i got a wham-doodle of a conclusion here. <laughs> Where you, how are you going to conclude it, Pastor? Well, I'm going to invite you to understand that in the Christian life, we are both active and we are passive. And the passive is we look to God. God works in. The active is we work out what God works in. Christians are active because God stimulates, inclines our hearts to, sovereignly moves us. 
But by the way, if you're not doing, if you're not doing good works in the Christian life, something's wrong, bad wrong. You know, we often quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, but is the gift of God, so that no man can boast. But we leave out verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of what? Good works. So the same people who are saved by grace alone are the same people who are God's masterpiece. It's his poema, which we get the uh, word poem from. We are his work of art, and we have been set apart by him, created to produce what? Good works. So there's an active, and there's a passive, saved by grace, active, working out your salvation. What God has works in, worked in, we work out. So, people who truly believe the gospel with all of its provisions for our need have to learn to look to Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith and to run with perseverance the race that is before us. We must live in the tension of both exerting effort and resting completely in the sufficiency of Christ. So what does that look like? Well, there are three terms in conclusion that I want to give you that I think are the best way I understand it. They are relax relaxation, effort, and despair. Now, where did I get that? Did I make it up? I got it from Isaiah 30. Let me read. Isaiah 30, 16 informs us that in repentance and rest is our salvation, and in quietness and confidence is our strength. Faith is a response to the forgiveness of sins. It is an act where we step outside of ourselves in all of our experiences and look to the promises that are made to us from outside of us and above us. That's what Luther meant when he talked about alien righteousness. The righteousness I have is not the righteousness I produce because I can't produce any. The righteousness I have is that which is outside of me. It's alien to me. It's something Christ accomplishes on my behalf. And so, here's what happens in sanctification. In sanctification, it, it, it being a process, we surrender to a new reality when we come to Jesus Christ. And that new reality is that um, we look to the, uh, the promises he has made from outside and above. It is resting as one who labors and is heavy laden comes to Jesus to find rest for the souls. I believe it means to surrender to a new reality. I am forgiven. I am righteous. I am not alone. I've been adopted into the family. It is an act of both humility and boldness. It is humility because I despair of my own ability to ever attain righteousness. Righteousness. It is an act of boldness because I dare to live contrary to all I feel about myself. I am a sinner and I am righteous at the same time. Semel ustus et peccator, Luther would shout. At the same time. But out of relaxing in Jesus 
We're always going back to our justification. We're all, part of our sanctification is going back to our justification and, and, and getting our bearings. It's understanding who we are. Because I'm going to tell you something that I do. I'm sure none of you have ever done this. But I will often, in the back of my mind, go, God, I deserve better than this. Because I've been doing the right stuff. How dare you let this happen to me? How dare you let this uh, terrible thing happen to me or my family or my loved ones? Because I deserve better. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit goes, think about it, son, for a minute. And then I start thinking about it. Oh, well, you know, I know what I deserve. I deserve to be abandoned forever in hell by God because I have committed cosmic treason against him. That's what I deserve. But when the Holy Spirit takes me back to the gospel, I see what Jesus has done for me. I rest in that. Then out of that resting comes motivational effort. Effort that is spirit-produced and inspired. And as I engage, attempting to walk with God, to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, love my neighbor as myself, inevitably I fail. And it leads me to despair, which leads me to repentance. And uh, I think Guy posted this on the Internet. I'd heard it before on Facebook. But what repentance is, is really collapsing in the arms of Jesus. We confuse repentance with its fruits. Repentance is falling into the arms of Jesus, which changes the direction of our lives. It is a change of mind about who we are and who Jesus is and what our sin is. And it's running back to Jesus and collapsing. That's the dance we do in sanctification. It never gets any different than that. And I can't tell that I'm actually getting much better. I wish I could. I have hope, ultimately, that when Christ returns, I'll be made totally perfect. But you know what the progress you make in the Christian life is seeing your sin returning to Jesus. We don't want to have to cling to Jesus. We don't want to have to live at, at his mercy. But that's what walking in sanctification, we tend to want to measure it in progress. I'm not as bad as I used to be. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You just don't know it yet. Some ways you're worse. I think sometimes the sins we Christians do are worse than the sins unbelievers do because we sin against what? Light, knowledge, grace, and mercy. Pastor, you're being awfully hard on us. Yeah, I'm being hard on you because I want you to run to Jesus every day. Not just a historical moment in the past where I received Jesus. You know, the gospel, I've told you this a thousand times, the gospel is not an event in which you enter the gate and never enter that gate again. The gospel is the pathway you walk. You need good news because apart from, apart from that good news, it's all bad news for us. Now, is there, is there change? Yes. But there's change, there's growth in humility. Well, how do you grow in humility? You grow down, right? <laughs> I used to think that progress in the Christian life, I've got to cut this off, but progress in the Christian life <laughs> was getting to where I was getting better. You know, I wasn't sinning as much. I became a sin manager. Well, you know, that's a, that's a peccadillo. That's a little white sin. But I don't commit the big, fat, juicy, awful technicolor sins I used to commit when I was an unbeliever. 
And so I was a sin manager, trying to convince myself that I'm changing. But the deepest change in me is I've discovered how much I need Jesus, and I discover it more every day. And that's how God works in what I work out. And somehow in that process, I change. Because he says I do. And sometimes I can, I can see it a little, but oftentimes I can't. And I've been at this for 40-something years. 40-something years. I think less of myself today than when I started. And you say, well, the Pastor, that doesn't make me feel good. Well, I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm here. <laughs> I'm here to help you see you need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for what we have heard today. And I know that only your spirit can really finish the job today. Only he can take this, show it to us, and show us how to work out what you work in. And so when we do it that way, we have nothing to boast in but Jesus. Paul said, but God forbid that I should boast or glory save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. That is my boast. So, Father, I pray that would be our boast as well. Now, as we continue to worship, may we give as those you have done a good work in, out of gratitude and joy for how gracious you have been to us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.